Welcome back to The Docket, the in-house podcast of the Best Evidence True Crime Review Newsletter. I'm your co-host, Sarah D. Bunting, and I'm here, as always, with Eve Beatty. Hello, Eve. Hello. So, what are we talking about today? I think we're going back in time. We Oh, we're going so, f- well, really far back in time, and then somewhat back in time. <laughs> we decided to talk a little bit about... Uh, David Mamet's JFK project, which apparently has been greenlit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't know. Like, the, <laughs> there's been some casting announcements about this. We'll link to it in the show notes to the variety story. Like, Vigo Mortensen is going to be in it, apparently. Not sure who he's going to be. Um, but, it, like, David, I like David Mamet product, but David Mamet as a person especially over the last few years um i just don't have any patience with that politically um i will say that there is a lot of overlap with mammoth's um particular breed of boomer hollywood libertarian and the sort of deep state um James Jesus Angleton and Hoffa conspired to kill Robert Kennedy. Can't prove a negative crackpot shit you sometimes hear. Uh, This isn't the least promising project I've ever heard, but like boulder of salt as we're in the lead up to it. Um, It goes into production in September in Vancouver. Uh, What were your, what was your initial reaction to hearing that this project was moving forward? Well, I mean, I think that there is very little left to do with the JFK assassination. And so I think that uh, casting about for a new angle, which in this case, I believe it's... Let me open the link to make sure I get this right. Yeah, so it's a Sam Giacana sort Mm, of like perceived slight sort of angle. Like, I'm just glad that we're, I guess we're going for, you know, something slightly new. But at the same time, it's like, how how seriously are we supposed to take the idea that um, people were mad that the president sort of snubbed somebody and so they're going to kill him? Like, this is really a thing that we're supposed to take seriously, given that these are professional criminals who have bigger fish to fry? Uh, Yeah. And do not, I mean, given the um, alleged connections between and among Giancana, Giancana's um, various Gumars, um, JFK's various lady friends, extracurricular lady friends, like I don't think it was in anyone's interest to press this point. Not that there's any such thing as a mafia. To to do this, like, big outre, how dare you? Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> My understanding of how these things work, like, it's not, this this does not add value. It's like that um, Law & Order where Mike Stone's character is like, why would I kill a guy who still owed me money? Then I'll never get the money. So- well, and the thing, too, is I think that, It's not like anybody thinks of the president as, like, the nation's top cop. Like, if someone told me, like, oh, there's, like, a mob conspiracy against a high-ranking person in the FBI or in the DOJ or something like that, sure. Like, I, that is not, like, out of the realm of possibility, in my opinion. But going straight to the president and then 
not taking credit for it. And like, I know that I've sort of come across this theory in books, but Sarah, is there even like a book that sort of breaks down like the Giancana like thing, like that, that's sort of the sole purpose of the book? Uh, there are a few, a lot of this stuff being, you know, self-published. Um, I, was just, I didn't want to sound like a snob and so like not self-published because of course some of my best friends have self-published books, but I kind of meant like a book published by like a major house that had been like arguably legally vetted, even though I guess maybe they don't always do that anymore. I don't know. Um, I don't, I mean, there's a lot of stock at Exhibit B in, um, like, Giancaniana, I guess, <laughs> is the word. Um, and some of them, it's like, it's co-written by his son, Sam Giancana Jr., and talks about all these connections. And I think Mark Shaw, in his multiple books about how Dorothy Kilgallen's death was um, utterly suspicious and should have been investigated because she was investigating the assassination at the time of her death slash murder. Um, I think those really get into that. But the real, like, for whatever reason, in my experience and based on what's in stock, um, the real, like, crackpot stuff that known publishing houses will go for tends to be more like the CIA uh, yeah. blaming it on the CIA because the CIA cannot say one way or the other can, yeah. will never confirm or deny or even pick up the telephone. So it's like there's no repercussions and there's no like you can't disprove these negatives. So the mobs, same kind of thing. Like it's very it's very unlikely and uncommon for compared to like the Kefauver committee and this guy being like, Oh no, that's not how it works at all. I, like, but I do think that guys who are in the mob talk, they do talk like we, most of the important mob stuff that we know, we know because guys have talked, guys have talked because they're drinking, guys have talked to their girlfriends. Yeah. And, and it's like, whatever, with the exception of like, Oh no, what happened to Jimmy Hoffa? And like, even that, I feel like he's dead. It's, you know, we've had a pretty solid idea of what happened to him for the last, like, since, you know, whatever, 50-something years. So, I don't know. It just, something that I always go back to is the inherent incompetence of every organization. Yeah. And that we would know. We would know if somebody in the mob had done this because somebody would have written a book to make money. Somebody would have spilled somewhere. Somebody would have wanted to go on Dr. Phil. And so, but like, this is mammoth though. This is not, this is not a great journalist doing this. So maybe, maybe I have the wrong attitude about it. I'll, I'll buy that. Maybe this is an inglorious bastards kind of thing for right. him, which, you know, spoiler alert for inglorious bastards, a very old movie. Inglorious bastards is not historically accurate when it comes to the uh, fall of the third Reich. Um, Maybe this is Mamet wanting to just play. And if so, then that's not the worst thing. That's when I enjoy Mamet as long as he doesn't get to wag the doggy smug. Right. Well, and, you know, you also have to, you also have to factor in like his um, dialogue can be very stagey. Um, mm -hmm. I think that he's a good writer, but not a you know naturalistic writer and maybe mm -hmm. that's what is called for 
hear like I think that there are certain directors whose styles are actually perfectly suited for this I would also say Terrence Malick is someone who I would like to see um, tackle almost any case where there's a ton of crackpot theories just because I think that you're talking as much about the way we talk about the cases as -hmm. you are about the case which is why I think Oliver Stone's JFK while not being a um, reliable document um, still has value Um, not just because it's very watchable um, and not because I believe a goddamn thing in it or because anyone is especially well cast or bewigged but because I think that it's a fascinating way into this story and into its myriad conspiracies and into the ways that sometimes true crime consumers will accept a theory based on the packaging and the quote company that Mm -hmm. created it. So, um, I mean, I haven't rewatched JFK recently. Uh, and I used to be convinced, like every time I sort of got becalmed by it on at like weekend afternoon cable TV, I'd get to the end of, I'd watch the whole thing, total Poppy Fields movie. I'd get to the mm-hmm. end and I'd be like, you know, the man makes some good points. He, he doesn't. It's, it's lunacy, right? But it, it's so watchable. And then I read Mortal Air and I was like, okay, any theory after this, I don't, I don't believe it. Like, yeah. it literally explains everything. Uh, I don't currently have a copy at the shop, but uh, if I ever do and you see me mention it, you should grab it because it's, I mean, it's very good and very convincing. But I think that JFK taught a lot of us how to talk about true crime, conspiracy, and crack pottery. Do you think that's true? Or is it just like this fun to watch curio that we shouldn't take too seriously because you can practically see the sheen of cocaine on it. Allegedly. For me, JFK is a good example of why true believers shouldn't be solely responsible for, um, journalistic storytelling. <laughs> Cause I do believe Oliver Stone's true believer about that, you know, about mm-hmm. everything that he presented in that movie. Well, I mean, I think in retrospect, there are some things he questioned. Did you watch, uh, his doc from, year before last i think yeah yeah Yeah, i and i reviewed it i think on best evidence we'll we'll link to that review i was um i was disappointed to learn that that documentary which i thought was going to be revisiting the movie was actually (laughs) just revisiting the whole case and letting him stalk his horses some more but i mean it's like it's all of well, the stone. The, the, it's the, all the, TL, the TLDR on the documentary is guys, I was right in 91 and I'm just reminding you that I was right now in 2021, which, Oh my God, you just think about the numbers and, um, you start to feel crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, like, Oh my God, I'm so old, but, but this is a good example of it. I mean, he has to, to your point, like, you know, his stocking horse, this is a guy that is sitting there obsessing about this, you know, what he believes to be this true stuff for whatever, what is this, 30 years? 91? I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. What, 40, whatever it is. He's sitting there, I mean, 
you know, just obsessing and obsessing and obsessing. And that is not, that's not how you put together a good theory. Um, that's not how you, like, that's not how you tell a story and consider all the possibilities. That said, I completely agree with you. It is, and that's why, you know, when I'm talking, like, thinking about the mammoth thing, it's the same sort of thing. Like, looking at JFK as a, the, the movie, as a piece of entertainment, like, that's great. But do you think that there are people who, like, are like, well, you know, in JFK, the movie, they said, and so, you know, uh, there was Kevin Bacon with, uh, you know, Tommy Lee Jones there. Everyone was all glossy with oil. That's what happened. I think that when the internet was not as when when it wasn't in our back pockets, basically, mm-hmm. and um, when JFK was something that you would either seen in the theater while like wearing a depend undergarment because <laughs> it's real long, or you had been hung over on a rainy Sunday and you just like walk past the TV and then 40 minutes later you have like one sock on and you're still watching it because the or you checked out the two VHS tape set Uh from Blockbuster or the library and yes it was two VHS tapes because it was so goddamn long fucking a that and then you like talk about it with like whenever it comes up you're just like sitting around drinking beers with your family and it's like well you know what do you think of jfk and like this is based on garrison's work and also some like mark lane who wrote whitewash and then wrote a bunch of other things about jfk like diminishing returns and also what is with guys named mark who have four letter last names obsessing (laughs) about corners of this case but anywho um I, th- I feel like it was um, taken as, not gospel, but I feel like we did take it seriously to the extent that you can take any of this seriously. But even at, when this came out, I was 18. I think I saw it on cable a couple years later in the college TV room. Even at that age you sense, even if you don't have a name for it, that there are aspects of this theory, whoever is the auteur of it in this case, that it is just like someone has decided willfully to conflate correlation and causation yeah, um, and to invest coincidences with meaning that they don't have, whose functional randomness can't be disproven, um, and I always think about that line from John Douglas about the fucking pineapple in the John Bonet case. It's like sometimes there's quote evidence that isn't evidence of anything. It's just there. And you just have to work around it. He can also be taken with a grain of salt, but I think there was a time when JFK was accepted as a a part of the the record in a way. Yeah. Not yeah. necessarily like it was the truth or the like the one true theory but that it was a um uh, it was a reputable theory that could be talked about with a straight face i guess yeah. for lack of a better way to put it yeah i mean no and i i you're you're totally right like i think on my first date with my now husband he sort of presented some of that stuff like as a straightforward thing. And I remember thinking to myself, like, oh, my God, am I having Chinese food with a conspiracy nut? Um, you know, it all worked out. But uh, like there was this time when 
Exactly. Like, Garrison was viewed as, like, a reliable source. All of this was. The other thing that I sort of think about when I think about the Stone movie, Mammoth's decision to keep it going, and just thinking about time and getting old and everything else is, we're sort of in that period where the last people who remember seeing the assassination as adults are around. Like, Within your and my lifetime, given that you and I both take care of ourselves um, and, uh, you know, we knock on wood, um, <laughs> we are going to outlive everyone who was alive when JFK was assassinated. And this will be something that will either be picked up with whatever the TikTok is of, you know, 2050 or will be forgotten or sort of a joke the same way that, you know, like John Wilkes Booth at the theater was, or no one will remember it at all. And so there's part of me when I think about Stone clinging to this and doing his his documentary and Mamet picking this up now is it's sort of the last gasp of the boomers. Like they want to, they're on their way out. God bless them. And they want to remind us of this really important moment in their life before they go. And so there's part of me that also just sort of feels like these are nostalgia pieces at a certain point and no longer anything that it, it is worth our time to keep trying to evaluate. Like, I guess that's horrible to say about a likely conspiracy within our government to assassinate, you know, an important and, you know, significant leader. But I don't know. Like, sometimes I feel like all of this is a distraction. Well, I do wonder what I do wonder what is going to become of this case. Like, there are certain cases that were absolutely huge when they Mm -hmm. occurred, like the Hall of Mills murder case, which I think is one of those things that because it happened about 100 years ago, we're going to get a whole bunch of material on it. Mm -hmm. Um but it's like once William Kunstler has written a book about it and then it drops below the horizon, like, I I think we're done, but I have a different POV on this than, than some. There's other cases that nobody is left who would remember this happening, and it's still a case that preoccupies us. But I think you're onto something with a particular preoccupation by boomers who also sort of concatenated this case and Watergate in their consciousness in terms of how they feel about government and institutions and systems. And And Vietnam, I feel like we have to put Vietnam in the mix there too. That, you know, the the sort of the bookends of Vietnam and I mean, Stone, obviously you can't talk about Stone without talking about Vietnam, but I feel like that, especially for these guys of this age, you know, American white males who lived through Vietnam. Like, I think it's all part of the same stew. Yeah. And that there is a, um, there is a profound and not entirely unwarranted paranoia about these systems and the fact that nobody is safe. And, you know, in terms of like, you know, relatable, but also in terms of like what different generations attach to and which cases endure across centuries. Um, You know, I guess let's check back in 20 years. (laughs) Yeah. But But, meanwhile, you know, John Hinckley is 
out, mm-hmm. you know, recording records. And, you know, the big difference is that he was not successful in killing then President Reagan. But so it's like some assassinations mean something to a generation. And you and I, or at least I, since I'm a little bit older than you, you know, I was called in from playing outside with my friend Ryan Tomlinson by his mom to watch live TV coverage of the scene of Reagan being shot. And that hasn't changed me at all, other than, you know, like, that hasn't had that sort of impact on me. So, and I don't think I'm a particularly callous person. Why the JFK assassination part of it, yeah, it's because it was successful. But there are other things, and I think that you're really onto something with the Watergate thing too, that just are stuck and become this point of obsession with these people. And I think, I'm very curious to see how successful Mammoth's film is in terms of audience, because I just don't know that there are a lot of folks left who want to stream out and see this and obsess over it the way people did about JFK. Um, I don't know if I agree with that. I think that at least in terms of the current, like, I think people get into JFK, that case, the way when you're like 11, you're like, oh my God, guys, the Beatles were really good. (laughs) Like watching my brother do this and then sort of attached to certain like goofy theories about Lennon's assassination and like whether Paul McCartney is the Paul McCartney that we started with and all this stuff was um, really fun when I was a late teenager and he was an early teenager. But I think there is something about this case that appeals to a certain kind of um, perhaps mildly depressive insomniac. Um, (laughs) I speaking for uh, all of us, you are my people. Um, value neutral statement but like people who will just like be able to comb the internet and be on web sleuths and just be like so who stole jfk's brain and that that aspect of it is um has cross-generational appeal but the ways in which the paranoia is going to manifest and the objects of the blame i think are going to shift so we'll see that's something that we can check in on sooner than 20 years from now. So we'll see how, when Mammoth's film drops it, can, uh, year after next, um, or whenever it will, uh, given how uh, problematic some of these cast members are, I, you know, yeah. 2026 seems optimistic, but we'll see. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Shia, yikes. Courtney Love. Yeah. The only lady. Yeah, Yeah. good luck. I mean, who was she playing? The car? I don't understand who... (laughs) I don't understand who's supposed to be playing what, but anyway. Yeah. um, Yeah, we have a second segment today. Yeah. Um, There's no no good transition between uh, JFK and Alice Siebold and um, Lucky and uh, the false conviction of her alleged rapist, is there? No, there's, I mean, there's no segue into this at all. Um, But Rachel Aviv, who is an excellent, is a top-notch writer in the genre. Um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with her work. And she wrote this piece about the sort of um, post-exoneration lives. Um, And then she jumps back to talk about how it came to be that Alice Siebold accused the wrong person, that the wrong person 
was convicted um, that this person, Anthony Broadwater, spent many, many years in jail or in prison, excuse me. And then he maxed out to like, I think he just bumped into the limits of good time somehow. So, so his, like, they just come into his cell and they're like, okay, get your stuff. It's time to go home. And he's like, asshole says what? Anyway, um, this is a quite a long piece. Um, it's in the May 29th issue of the New Yorker. We will put a link in the show notes. If you, um, listening to this, now you have a whole like fresh raft of Condé Nast free reads, uh, for a new month. And I definitely recommend this one because I struggled with some of Rachel Aviv's choices, um, in terms of how the whole story was framed, I'm not sure she had a ton of choices in terms of how she like entered the story and then took us back to the beginning of this. Um, Like there's no, there's no heroes. There's no winners here. It's what did you think of the, what did you think of the piece qua piece as a reading experience? Well, I, I, the thing that I, I I hate to define things in the negative, but I'm about to. The thing that I appreciated about this piece, um, and this is not a criticism of every all the other coverage of um, the situation to this point, is that it did not center. And I am going to mispronounce his last name, uh, Timothy McConcier. Do you do you know how to say this name? This is no. the guy. This is the movie producer who was working with Siebold on Lucky. Um, Muccianti? Yeah. Is that how... Say it again. Muccianti? Muccianti. I like that. Let's go with that. Um, So he was working with her on Lucky. This is like in 2019. Like, like, this is 20 years after this book was published. And um, he started... Like struggling with inconsistencies in the story and um, like in how it was being adapted and what she said about the attack at the time. And he ended up hiring his own PI. So this is a great story. And this is, I think, how I first found my way into it was it might have been a Times piece, something or maybe it's something else. I can't remember. We wrote about it in Best Evidence. I did. And so much of this was from his perspective, was his trying to figure out what had gone wrong in the case and um, how he uncovered the fact that Anthony Broadwater was not the rapist. He did it so quickly. He did it in like two days. And this is yeah. this is an infuriating story, right? And But we do have this sort of problematic narrative of essentially this sort of like, white male savior Mm -hmm. who comes in and um, saves this guy from the woman who asked him to move a chiffre robe. I mean, like that's a, that's an exaggeration, but you know, this, this woman, this rape victim who identified this guy wrongly. So to have something that centers Siebold and Broadwater to me was of great value, given that the, you know, the other narrative is so juicy, right? Like the guy who's like uncovering the truth, but deviating from that and going straight for Siebold, who is this beloved literary figure, it was a bold move and one that I was uncomfortable about at the jump, but ended up really feeling okay with as things went on. Yeah. 
I think that the fact that uh, Mucciante, if that's how you pronounce it, if it's not, feel free to add us nicely. Um, and not for nothing, this is the financier of the project who just stopped paying after a while, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. and also is a disbarred lawyer and was disbarred for um, forgery. He doesn't show up until like two thirds of the way through the story. Um, but because this is a story about, I mean, as all true crime stories are, it's a story about competing stories. Mm-hmm. And at the center of it is a sexual assault survivor whose story of this assault is her career. Like, it it comes up again and again in the work that she's the most known for. And this account is not factual like this is you know this book is taught in schools it won awards i have actually never read lucky i read the lovely bones i thought it was good aviv's choices in terms of not just centering seabold but putting her at the top of the story and talking about this very melodramatic literal vertigo that she's suffering so you're you're taking this wronged figure who mediated her own attack and her own suffering into something um, helpful for herself and, you know, a generation of readers at least Mm -hmm. um, and making her sound annoying. Like she is the most annoying of your like high school writing teachers with the wooden jewelry and the, you know, she had like a special chair that she brought in from home. We all had this teacher yeah. Bless, bless their hearts. But this, like, this is a choice. Jacket to, from Chico's. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like uh, I was sort of fascinated by this. Um, and look, I'm a writer, and we're we're just mostly annoying. It's true. But I was fascinated by this decision making, and then to v- sort of very dryly almost underplay how this woman who, when all of this happened was, I mean, she was like 18. She was a child and put her trust in systems. And, you know, all of us put our trust in eyewitness testimony to this ridiculous degree. And somehow Anthony Broadwater got convicted when there was absolutely no way he should have been because there was a tainted lineup. And it's just like, uh, her, her culpability is both huge and nil. And the way that Aviv orders the story is very effective at creating ambivalent sympathies. Um, and, but not preaching. I think it's extraordinarily well done and well edited as a piece. And it's not afraid to make its central figures, not Broadwater, who seems like a good egg who, was wrongly done by period, mm-hmm. but to make Seabold seem kind of um, just like a little bit off-putting up top and then to fill in the story around her and behind her and make her seem, if not totally relatable, then familiar. It's, it's good. It's good. It's not an easy read, but it's good. Well, and there's an, like... And I don't want to like make this into more than it is, but this is 
when we talk about the problematic nature of white feminism and the mm. problematic nature of white women who have been victimized centering themselves in you know other victim narratives this article is such a great example of that and i think one of the reasons it is is because it doesn't say that it doesn't say this case is a great example of white feminism or it it is you know like when we talk about that that you know the screenwriting thing the show don't tell thing which we have all said to you know people we've edited and everything else like this is such a great example of that because it like there are just like little things like I think an element that especially struck me and Sarah maybe it just struck me because of where I live is it talked about her in San Francisco with her she was so cold and she has her fingerless gloves and her dogs and everything and mm. I thought once again like I thought oh I know this woman this is the woman at the coffee shop you know who's behind me who's saying like I don't understand why everyone still isn't wearing a mask which is fine if you wear a mask it's fine it's fine wear a mask that's great I respect you but uh don't make it your personal identity. Don't make wearing a mask your personal identity. Don't make being a cyclist your personal identity. Just don't. Um, oh, but God. like, I immediately Seriously. knew this woman. I knew this type of woman. <laughs> this woman actually, I think, lives not too far from me, too. So um, I don't know. Now I'm like suddenly anxious about going outside. But it was one of those things where I brought my baggage around that certain sort of tote bag, white feminist, educated member of the creative class person without a day job to it all. And I think probably a lot of other readers will too, mm -hmm. without, without, without the writer having to put that in there. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly I think that, um, that's part of, um, that sort of reflects the content of the piece is that there are all sorts of things that people bring to, eyewitness testimony to ID lineups. There are all sorts of things that this prosecutor who um, really screwed the pooch ethically yeah. was bringing to the numerous rape cases that they hadn't even brought to a grand jury, that they couldn't find enough evidence that um, Siebold's own parents, like her, her teachers when they're interviewed about this, her instructors are like, trying to be gentle, but they're like, I could tell she wasn't supported. Like her parents didn't really believe her. And once they did, we're sort of like, yeah, well, you shouldn't have been walking home at night. Fuck mm -hmm. you. So there's, there's a lot here. Um, and I think that by sort of arraying all of our baggage for us in the room and then not really looking at it again. That's another smart choice on Aviv's part that I think she is um, one of the leading experts at doing that, especially around um, misogyny in criminal justice and law enforcement contact. So yeah, well done, but yeah, like ugly, ugly stuff and all too common a variation on the, the uh the story and the experience yeah but i think e even though there are a lot of reasons to not want to read it in terms of how triggering it is and how frustrating it is and of course i think the reaction that most of us by which i mean not just you and me but like the folks who are listening to this and read best evidence the discomfort we have with the idea that a rape victim could get something crucial wrong it's still worth reading and after a while 
you'll get past that. I assure you. Yeah. Because, you know, it does, it does have something to, to tell us. Yeah. Much like JFK. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think maybe you should re- you should maybe rewatch uh, the Stone movie sometime because I rewatched a little bit of it this weekend. And it, I don't know. I mean, ju- like Tommy Lee Jones's wig alone. I mean, this is a true crime podcast, and that is one. Next week, we'll be talking about The Crowded Room. It's finally here from Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, we'll also be talking about why uh, dissociative identity disorder is almost always framed as uh, having a true crime angle. And we'll be talking about some other long-awaited or surprise properties dropping in the middle of June. As always, you can find us at bestevidence.fyi, and you can call us or text us with topics, 919-75-CRIME. We hope that we'll hear from you, and we'll see you in the comments. Talk to you next time. Bye.